Hi everyone, I'm your host, Daniel Lee, and welcome to OMD Daily, a podcast about investing in people. Every Monday to Friday, I share with you what I learned the day before from studying people and companies through conversations, whether it's through interviewing investors and business leaders, to reading books and financial reports, and digesting learnings from all the other storytelling mediums out there. The goal is to build my own PhD in combining human performance with investing to figure out how I can help leaders build utopian companies. By exploring my own curiosity, I hope to become a little wiser every day and hope this adds a little nugget of learning to you on a daily basis. Hey everyone, welcome back to OMD Daily. Today is May 27th, 2020. What am I going to talk about today? Well, today's conversation will be about Spotify. I think I might have talked about Spotify, um, I want to say last week or some previous episode because I did take an earlier stab at it, but to keep up with the trend from that started yesterday when I reviewed Atlassian using Phil Fisher's 15-point checklist, I thought, hmm, why don't I try to make that more of a foundational guide and just kind of use that as a way to constantly do first passes of companies after reading an annual report or so. So I decided to try that out with Spotify today. Um, yeah, I think, how should I start this? Well, the first thought I had was actually before I actually get into the company was this took a long time. <laughs> it, it it took longer than I kind of expected. And it's definitely gotten me thinking about how sustainable it would be to continuously read annual reports and do the full kind of checklist analysis on top of it. Um, I actually tried to write a full report today. I'd say it's maybe something like 95% complete, um, but it took much longer than I had expected. And I think there definitely is a function to it where the companies I'm reading about tend to be larger, annual reports tend to be longer. Um, and yeah, I don't get to go through into the depth that I want it in some cases. So that's something to definitely consider as well. But I do, I am trying to kind of keep up with an internal goal to try to read at least one annual report a day or try to read a annual report a day. Sometimes I don't get to do it. But when I do, I want to then be able to complete complete it off with a, a form of a report. Um, but yeah, I, it's something I haven't really gone my head around, like figured out how I can incorporate that into my system of all the activities I do throughout the day. But yeah, that's, a, that's just something that's kind of... Ref- I wanted to reflect on, I guess, openly, um, just as I was recording this. But that's enough reflection. So kind of getting in to begin with. So Spotify, um, I think the the first checklist point will kind of answer what the business is and kind of the backdrop of it. So the first checklist point, does the company have products or services with sufficient market potential to make possible a sizable increase in sales for at least several years? So when I think about this point, it starts with what does the company do? What is Spotify? What does it do? It's you know, plainly, it's a software company um, that allows people to listen to music and podcasts on demand. Um, it has an app form, it has a desktop form, but generally there really are, I think, two options that or two segments customers fall under. They're either in the free tier or the premium tier. And that's kind of how the company recognizes revenue. There's really two business segments. There's the premium revenue, which makes up like 90%, um, which is made up completely of monthly subscriptions. 
and there's the free tier, which is the ad supported tier where Spotify just earns ad revenue and that's about 10% of total revenue. Overall, the premium tier, I think, is the more desired just because at least in this current stage, the growth margin is higher at, I think, some some mid-20% for the premium, whereas the ad-supported is in the mid-teens percent for gross margin. And let's see. So the way I thought about approaching this today was actually... So yesterday when I looked at Atlassian, I just kind of riffed off points um, as I was going through the checklist, but today I actually wrote up the full report using the checklist. So it's gotten much more detailed with more points, but I still want to use this more as a guideline so that I don't have a one hour long conversation like like I did yesterday. So back to the checklist. Um, Does the company have products or services with sufficient market potential to make possible a sizable increase in sales for at least several years? I would say, yeah, they do. I think when I looked at the market for it all, um, there really are mainly like four I want to say players, um, Spotify as of 2019 had about 36% market share just based on the number of total uh, subscribers in the music industry. Spotify had about 36% of them. Um, this was mid-2019. I want to say they probably are up to close to maybe 20, I mean uh, 40%-ish now. Um, we're in around Q2 of 2020. The second biggest, I believe, was Apple at 18%. And then it was, uh, I think, Google. Oh, no, it was Amazon, I think, in 12% or so. And then it was Tencent at 10%. And then you have Google slash YouTube at like some 5%. Um, So from the market standpoint, I think, yeah, like, I think Spotify definitely has the lead. And this is, I think, audio and video are different, where video... People make a lot of comparisons to Spotify and Netflix, but I think Spotify is definitely different. They, I think, do get in Netflix's model is relatively clear. They're a, subscri- a subscription based model as well. They pay licensing fees to the various um, owners of various TV shows like NBC, Disney, um, etc. And Spotify is the same from that regard. All their cost of revenue is mainly the license fees that they pay to the big three um, record labels, you know, Universal Music Group, Sony, and uh, I'm forgetting one more. The big three. Where are my notes? Oh, Warner. Yeah, Warner. So it's Sony, BMG, Universal Music Group, and Warner Music Group. And they own some... Apparently, they own something like 80% plus of all music that is out there. So, yeah, Spotify pays those three for all the license deals. So, Netflix has a bit of that, but, but I think Netflix also has a huge investment into the content side, um, where they develop a lot of original content. Spotify doesn't really do that y- yet. I think people can argue that they are slowly ramping that side up, especially with, um, you know, podcast acquisitions and, you know, acquiring like podcast studios like Gimlet for example so you can say that they might have an interest in going to that scheme but that's not their core business model at the moment and I think something that also is different is just the behavioral use of audio and um, video so one thing with I think video is 
customers can have multiple video streaming uh, services. Like I know of a lot of my own friends who will have maybe two services on average where they might have Netflix and uh, and Prime Video or Netflix and Hulu or you know, Hulu and HBO, some, something like that, where it seems like there really isn't kind of loyalty to one because there are a good amount of TV shows that are owned by various um, streaming sites. And so you end up just subscribing to multiples of them. Whereas I think for audio, that's not the case behaviorally. I don't know of anyone that actually subscribes to two different audio streaming services. Um, I guess YouTube Premium might be the only one that's different just because I think it allows you to download all the videos. And so that might be the only exception. But I think audio is one of those where there actually is exclusivity in owning or in using the product. Like you only use one particular one. And that kind of ties into what I think is Spotify's moat. But if I were to think about their ability to contingency uh, grow the business, and if I were to give context historically, I think their three-year, um, so their KGR from 2017 to 2019, in regards to revenue growth has been 28%. And I think the gross profit CAGR has been 42% for those respective years um, because you've seen the gross margin expand from the mid-teens to uh, the mid-20% uh, mid by 2019. And it's, you know, it's not like the most huge, huge sales growth that you'd expect from high growth companies. Like I think nowadays 20% growth is kind of, table stakes and everyone expects something like 50 percent or something but if i were to consider spotify's ability to continue to grow their top line and let's say mid-teens uh, annually like their subscriber numbers are growing in the 30 percent year over year i think that is relatively possible um one is that they currently have a leading position in the market in the marketplace and there obviously is a, I think, switch in how consumers are choosing to digest content. Where it's not just audio or video, like even Wall Street Journal, The Economist, like these kind of digital publications. Subscribing to them, I think, are becoming more of a behavioral norm. Um, so I can see more people subscribing actually and paying for Spotify and joining on as a premium subscriber. But I think the more important thing is. If what I believe pans out where people choose, if they were to listen to music to only use one um, service provider, then you'd see this kind of oligopoly come out where you have one player that just dominates with something like 70% market share. And you might have a couple niche focused ones like maybe, you know, YouTube because they have the video option or uh, Tencent just because they own China. Um, that have maybe you know five percent, ten percent of the market, but you'd have one mega player, which I don't think would be the case in video, where I would rather expect maybe four or five huge players in video, kind of equally splitting up the pie. I think in audio, I would expect Spotify to take over the entire pie, and I think that gives it plenty of ample room for future growth and margin expansion as well, because if we think about um, the gross margin spotify so there is the fact that premium subscribers are high have generated higher gross margin um and so 
the continuous growth of the premium subscriber base has helped in that margin expansion, but also Spotify has been able to continuously kind of negotiate, I think, lower prices for um, their license fees to or license and royalty fees to these record labels. And in some ways, there's kind of this weird prisoner uh, dilemma situation with these record labels where if one backs out, then the other two can kind of benefit further um, because music now it's just all about discoverability and just getting in front of a huge listenership uh, listener base and that's really what the record labels were able to do they had all the distribution they you know were able to get all the cds out into um what's it i think it was called hmv back then uh, even i'm forgetting but yeah all the kind of audio stores but now distribution is all on spotify People go to the platform and that's how artists get discovered. So the record labels all have an incentive to be on the platform and they want to be on the largest distribution one. So as Spotify gets bigger, they'll have more power. And I thought about the possibility of a record label doing what you know Disney did, did with video and saying, you know, how Disney created Disney Plus and how a record label can say, you know, we're going to, Sony's going to create Sony Plus and we're going to have our own audio streaming service. I think that is a possibility, but I think that completely limits um, the distribution because they would have to build up a whole new channel unless they acquire an existing one. But the existing large players are all part of the large uh, fang company. So I don't think that's really a possibility unless they do some kind of weird partnership model. But even then, I think it's less likely. I think everyone would probably prefer to just be on the largest um, platform. And as Spotify currently has that lead, I just see it continuously compounding and perpetuating. And, you know, I think everyone has various estimates of the market, like the music recording industry hit some 19 billion in sales in 2019. And as far as streaming goes, I think, uh, Goldman Sachs and like media research are giving some estimates of a market that could be anywhere as like 39 billion to 45 billion by um, something like 2026, 2030. Who knows how big this market will be, but Spotify currently generates, um, I think the revenue figures, figure was just under 2 billion in 2019 in revenue. And this is a mix of digital ads and premium subscriptions. So I think if you combine those two, it creates a much wider TAM than you can think about. And I think there's also this kind of dark horse optionality where Spotify can actually eventually become this kind of creator's platform, much like Medium and YouTube, where creators will put up their work and Spotify will actually pay them. Um, And that's kind of in line with the mission of what Spotify uh, is going for. That's what Daniel X previously said as well where i'll read this quote to you um daniel Eck, the founder and ceo has said our mission is to unlock the potential of human creativity by giving a million creative artists the opportunity to live off their art and billions of fans the opportunity to enjoy and be inspired by these creators and so it seems to be a long-term vision for spotify and you know billion fans that would be 10 times the current uh premium subscriber base it'd be five times the current um, monthly active user base and yeah that that's just on the customer side but to help a million creative artists make a living off 
that I think is still in the infancy and that can create this very fascinating opportunity um, where Spotify can transform into this full platform, much like YouTube, where a lot of creators will actually make the platform thrive over time by continuously contributing. Like you could, I could even imagine a case where the independent um, artist pie actually grows bigger compared to the existing record labels because now kind of the barrier for to discoverability, which is what, the record labels had, I think, can potentially come down with what Spotify is providing to the various creators out there. So yeah, I think um, to answer the first checklist point, yep, that I see, I see plenty of runway. I think there's the market has sufficient potential to allow Spotify to have continuously high sales for years to come. Item number two, does the management have a determination to continue to develop products or processes that will still further increase total sales potential when the growth potentials of currently attractive product lines have largely been exploited? Hmm. So it's kind of touching upon what I kind of talked about. I think the current business model is focused on the premium subscribers, getting the ad-supported revenues, um, very focused on the music side, and podcast is this kind of second avenue that they're building out as I think Daniel Eck called it kind of creating their own form of radio, like becoming the new, um, what is it? Function or kind of becoming the new uh, medium for what radio was before where, you know, acquiring Bill Simmons, um, the ringer podcast, like they equate that to being sports radio. Um, and how Spotify will own that. And the partnership with Joe Rogan, like that's going to garner a lot of attention onto Spotify. So I think all that is kind of the second wave of what they're trying to build up. And I think the third would be this whole marketplace for creators. I don't think it's completely being realized by the market at the moment because everyone is focused on the current opportunity, which is the music streaming. And I think people are just understanding the podcast, especially with um, the Joe Rogan acquisition. But engagement and attention is much higher on podcasts than they are with audio. And Daniel Eck has also pointed out that they're actually seeing more kind of um, subscription happening from podcast listeners where you listen to podcasts and you don't want ads anymore. And so then you end up going into the premium side because you're just on this long hour, hourly long interview uh, episode, whereas music it's just three minutes, and you can kind of move on from there. So I think that's definitely, um, yeah. So I think yeah, management has a determination. I think it's part of the mission of the company to achieve that. Um, in the report I'm writing, there's there's these huge excerpts that I've kind of added that I don't that I won't really read because it's kind of too long, but. I think, yeah, they have the appetite for it. It's aligned with the mission. I think there's kind of three large facets to um, Spotify's execution plan. And I think we're, everything's just focused on the first one, really. And the second one is kind of slowly panning up, but it hasn't really fully monetized itself yet, as from what I can tell. Then there's also the fact that X started the company in 2006, and he's still 37, I think, years old right now. So he's young. And I think that's something that people might not consider, but the age and energy level of the CEO is very important for someone to steer the company. And you want that person to be hungry 
Egg hasn't received salary and bonus or any kind of financial compensation for the last few years since uh, running Spotify. And he owns 18, about 18% of the outstanding shares. And he also controls uh, 77% of the voting power uh, along with his uh, co-founder, who's just a board member, Martin Lawrenson. So Egg has a lot of skin in the game. He's definitely aligned and he definitely wants the company to succeed in the long term. So I, w- I would say, yeah, they definitely have that um, mentality. And when you look at where the company puts all their money, like currently said in that loss, but when you look at where the company is um, investing all the money that they generate from gross profit, most of it goes to sales and marketing and R&D. Like those two are the largest components as far as operating expenses go. So I think they're definitely in the theme of just constantly reinvesting capital. Three, how effective are the company's R&D efforts in relation to its size? So R&D is about 9% of revenue and sales and marketing, I'll just kind of touch upon that too, is about 12% of revenue. And that might seem small, but given how gross margin is 25%, uh, I think it's still a pretty material part um, of the business. But I think about the R&D effectiveness, um, one can look at the current market share and revenue growth, which are both, I'd say, pretty solid. Um, and I think that demonstrates a strong product, their ability to win over the market, um, proving out that R&D might be pretty effective. I think something else that I use to determine the effectiveness is actually calculating the return on capital employed. And the way I do that for R&D is I actually capitalize four years worth of R&D expenditures um, purely on the personnel expense because I believe this is a business whose asset base is completely on uh, focused on the human capital side, which is also what management has agreed on as well. So if human capital is your key asset base, that is the capital you're employing. And so then what I do is I capitalize four years worth of personal expense related to R&D and sales and marketing. Four years because that's the vesting period for the restricted stock options that are used to continuously incentivize uh, employees and get alignment. So when I use that and calculate my own owner's earnings, which is kind of my own definition of free cash flow, um, it's practically like free cash flow that subtracts out the reinvestment component. So all the fee all the expenses related to R&D and sales and marketing because all that's part of the denominator now. So when I get when I use that, I get something like a 50% return on capital employed in 2019. And yeah, when I look at that, that's a pretty solid number. I think I would say they're generating a pretty solid return. And this ties into checklist number four. Does the company have an above average sales organization? Yeah, I would say so. <laughs> I can't really tell whether uh, it's the sales or R&D team that's being more effective, but either way, they contribute to a pretty high return on capital employed. So I think they're doing their job relatively well. Item number five, does the company have a worthwhile profit margin? Decent. Um, I think, you know, given the fact that the gross margin is 25%, keep that in mind. Uh, the margin I calculate with their their owner's earnings, so the way I calculate it, um, so it's basically, like I said, free cash flow, and you make adjustments for 
um, the human capital component that would be dedicated more towards the reinvestment. And so I only include salaries and expenses related to the GNA and just kind of the maintenance of the organization. Then I get something like a 18% uh, margin, the three-year average being around 16%. So I'd say, yeah, it's pretty decent. Um, the company is able to generate positive cash flow and that just gives them ample room to reinvest all that, which kind of ties into a future checklist item where they probably won't need to use any external financing to um, continue to grow the business. Item number six, what is the company doing to maintain or improve profit margins? Well, to start off, the unit economics are not looking too great. Um, they don't only really share the lifetime value of the customer, but they share the ARPU for premium subscribers and it has been declining from 2017 to 2019. 2017 was 5.3 euros and 2019 we're looking at 4.7 euros so that is declining but management has explained why that is the case and it is because they introduced the student plan and the family plans and those tend to be on a discount not to mention a lot of their marketing campaign has been partnering up with telecommunication companies to provide a lot of free trial, uh, free trials. There's also the seasonal free trials. So all that included leads to lower ARPU, um, I think, in the near term. But I would imagine, I would, I would, I would imagine I would see a positive trend upwards as they kind of solidify their position. But I think that's something I would like to keep a watchful eye on. But yeah, so, but still the checklist item is asking, you know, what is the company doing to maintain or improve their profit margins? And I think this is, this kind of segues into the mode of the company. Like what is the competitive, competitive advantage? What does it do so well and how can they, you know, what do they have that allows them to continuously generate high returns on capital, um, generate positive margins? Can they expand their mode? And I think the big, uh, advantage they have well once again i say there are many factoids but a big one i think would be network effect um network effect in a way of or i don't know if that's the right word it's kind of a mix of network effect and scale because I say skills, I guess it'd be scale in the beginning because right now they have a large uh, subscriber base. They are the most utilized audio platform. They're the largest in the world uh, by far. And so as more people use it, they become more valuable to the suppliers and suppliers being the record labels. So they those guys, they want to be on the biggest platform. They want to have the largest distribution channel. And... Over time, as Spotify becomes the singular most valuable distribution channel, the power actually would scoot over to Spotify. And I think that's been slowly being made evident as Spotify is able to negotiate more favorable licensing terms. And I think over time, as this perpetuates, you know, when your friends use Spotify, you're probably going to use Spotify because as people kind of share playlists, as people share music, it happens directly on Spotify. And I think there is that kind of network effect that exists amongst the listeners. But I think what could really happen, what I'm really excited about is 
this idea of a marketplace developing where if you have the largest distribution platform, more artists and creators will want to actually directly post more of their creations, more of their um, podcasts, more of their music on Spotify directly. Like I personally switched my podcast host because I wanted access to Spotify. And I think we will see more and more podcasts go focus on trying to be on Spotify more so than Google, for example. Um, like I personally only listened to Apple Music because Joe Rogan was on there, but now that Spotify has to deal with Joe Rogan, I will never use Apple Podcasts. I will just continue to use Spotify. So I think that continuously will perpetuate itself where creators will all want to use Spotify for the distribution. Listeners will all want to come to Spotify because it has all the podcasts, it has all the music, although I believe Apple Music still has 50% more songs than Spotify does, but it seems that Spotify has plenty already, so that kind of hits the bucket, because I think, I, I forget what the data is, but it I just remember that most people only listen to like a single digit percentage of all the songs out there, like, so if that's the case, then you don't really need all the songs, you just need the songs that everyone listens to. And so then it's not even even about having the most exhaustive library. And so I think that also leads to the kind of stickiness factor where a lot of customers say that they like using Spotify because of the curation element. I personally don't use it, so I have no idea what that is like. But it seems that as more listeners use Spotify and their personal tastes are constantly um, cataloged, and the data is constantly fed into Spotify's own algorithms, Spotify will recommend playlists or create playlists for you that fit your taste of music, your taste of podcasts, and the more you use it, the more personalized it becomes. And it's not even about making your own playlist, but even having playlists made for you. And it's one of those things, the more you use it, the more customized, personalized it becomes, and so then it becomes harder to pull yourself away from it, because why would you? this single platform has exactly what you want and that can only be achieved by giving it more of your own time and i think that's a very valuable thing that um, entrenches the software or the product inside the user's life Um, and it can be really hard to displace that going forward so yeah i'd say it's a mix of all those factors Um, i think another factor is the fact that Spotify is the only player amongst this competition that is a audio-first company. Um, Spotify, like this is all they do. Their mission is all about helping um, creators in the audio world. They want to be the largest audio platform in the world. But you look at the competitors like Apple, Amazon, Google. They're not music companies. They just have like Apple's a luxury hardware company. Um. Amazon does e-commerce and cloud. Google does search and advertising. Like, this is not their game. And I, I would be hard-pressed to imagine that they would even want to compete with Spotify in this realm. Like, if I considered Apple the second biggest player, like, their, my personal experience is it's awful with Apple products in terms of um, the podcast world. Like, Apple Podcasts is a pretty awful uh, app. Um, I'm so much happier using Spotify. The only reason that I kept on pushing away from it was just because, yeah, like I kind of built up my own playlists and 
podcast to follow on Apple. But once I moved to Spotify, I just decided to rebuild it out. And I was much happier doing that. As a podcaster, yeah, like once again, my experience working with Spotify is so much easier than with Apple Podcasts. Apple Podcasts is awful in terms of, I think, working with um, new creators. And even their interface just seems so outdated and their um, analytics engines are very faulty. It's just very evident that Apple doesn't invest in that area. It's just kind of there. Um, so yeah, I think that is also an added advantage for Spotify. And yeah, so I think those are the immediate ones, but I think what it can do with podcasting as kind of becoming the new radio is could be a game changer. I think if they went into content creation, it could possibly change a lot of things. Um, it would definitely lower operating margins, but um, I think that is a different avenue. And yeah, once they become this full creators platform, I think that makes it extremely powerful. It, it'll become something more like YouTube eventually, not so much Netflix. Item seven, does the company have outstanding labor and personnel relations? Um, so they don't really share much in the annual report, unfortunately, but I read briefly on the Spotify way where I'm not going to go into too in-depth here because I'm not too fami- familiar with it. Um, at the highest level, I learned that they have this unique organization structure that utilizes uh, something called squads, tribes, guilds, and chapters. It's a way that the company kind of reorganizes its teams internally so that they can have a lot of different units operate like small startups. So they have squads of something like 6 to 12 employees where they're supposed to operate like mini startups that work completely autonomously. They organize everything amongst themselves. They kind of sit around themselves as like a complete unit. And they have tribes which are made up of a bunch of different squads and guilds that are used to, I think, also um, categorize various squads inside tribes in a different function. Like, I'm not too familiar with it, but there's definitely been a lot of thought put in place for it. And it seems like that is kind of the uniqueness of the organization structure. It's been kind of purposely created as a new form of kind of agile scaling. So I know that exists. But none of that's communicated, at least in the annual report or the shareholder letters. So that's kind of disappointing. If I look at the Glassdoor rating, it's just very average. Something like a it gets 3.7 out of 5 with 488 reviews. Now you compare this to what I would consider to be pretty amazing companies by culture standards. Uh, there's Shopify with 4 out of 5 at 630 reviews. Atlassian at 4.3 out of 5 with 530 reviews. So compared to that, I'd say Spotify is pretty average, but I, I think they definitely have a unique organizational structure. Um, so I think that's something worth digging deeper into for me. Checklist eight, does the company have outstanding executive relations? Um, as far as incentives are aligned with Daniel Ek, I would say so 100%. Um, he's an owner operator. He doesn't abuse compensation. He has material ownership in the company. He, he has skin in the game. And I think he has plenty of skin in the game that I'm happy with. And as far as compensation for executives go and how, you know, they're incentivized, what kind of behavior is being pushed, it's a little disappointing. Um, They don't really have much of a performance element to their long-term equity compensations, like uh, companies companies like Constellation Software or, or Roper Technologies have, like where they have, you know, return on invested capital hurdles, net organic uh net organic revenue growth hurdles 
they don't have any of that at Spotify. Um, it's kind of more cookie cutter where you just get these restricted stock units that vest over four years. And I'm sure they have some kind of metric internally where this is chosen to give, you know, be divvied out, but it's not earned with specific metrics that's shared to shareholders. But it doesn't seem like they seem to abuse it terribly. Um, when I look at the total compensation for the C-suite team, it came out to some $7 million, which isn't out, outrageous when I think about other uh, companies that are of similar size or even bigger, um, or actually even smaller. Like I've, I've seen smaller t- uh, companies like at this t- stage, Spotify has something like a $43 billion market cap. I've seen companies that... 10 billion market cap and under that have much higher total executive compensation. So I think this is pretty reasonable. Um, the salary ranges ranged from about 250k to 560k, um, which all seemed quite reasonable. And most of the rest of the compensation is in long-term equity um, retri- restricted stock units. As for the directors, se- I saw seven out of the eight opt for compensation and long-term. Uh, restricted stock units, which I think is quite favorable when they opt to not have a cash payment. Um, so this isn't their like, job, but they're choosing to kind of be along for the ride for the long term. Something I'd rather see in the board. Um, so overall, yeah, I think the company has pretty solid executive relations. Not outstanding. I think it could be better. Item 9, does the company have depth to its management? Um, I would say so in through the CEO and founder, Daniel Eck. He's been with the company as a founder. The other founder, uh, Martin Lawrenson, isn't really involved, I think. He was the chairman of the board until 2016. But as far as the executive team goes, the depth is, I think, questionable. I'd say the head of R&D has the most depth, most depth where he joined in 2009. The rest kind of came... Uh, during during the IPO period, I would say. But I guess I'm trying to be re- mindful of the fact that sometimes the team that gets you, the team that builds the business is not the same team that scales it because it is a different skill set. But I would have still liked to see more internal promotions for the executive team. Like I would have rather liked to see them um, develop the ta- talent internally Um especially over the 14 years of the, co- the company's existence. But I think that's something to be more watchful of going forward. Item 10, how good are the company's cost analysis and accounting controls? It's decent. I think that the disclosure is decent. What's amazing is that they have quarterly shareholder letters. I think that's very impressive. I like the fact that uh, Eck writes all that. And they share, I think, as much as they can in terms of the unit economic numbers and just business segments. I'm trying to be mindful that they probably can't share everything because it is a competitive market. Um, but, you know, I think they could still do a better job, I think, compared to other shareholder letters I've read. I think they could do a better job of disclosing more, but they do a pretty decent job. Uh, number 11, are there other aspects of the business somewhat peculiar to the industry involved, which will give the investor important clues as to how outstanding the company may be in relation to its com- competition? Uh, a few things, I think, come out. One is the fact that they direct listed, which I think sets a message for the kind of company they are, um, one that won't follow industry standards just because. And I personally think it's the more prudent, logical way for companies to go public. It 
you know, there's no pandering to a lot of short-term minded um, investors. And so you, I think, will end up resulting in the kind of investors you deserve over time um, much faster by going di- by direct listing. I think other things are like how I think I learned this is not in the annual report, but I remember learning the story of how Spotify first started and how instead of focusing on the big markets like many do, Spotify started with the niche. It's targeted um, the hometown of Sweden, worked with the government to get the support and then targeted the other neighboring Scandinavian countries. And it just continuously tested their business model before launching it to the big markets in the UK and the US. And so it was until until way much later in the company's life cycle that Spotify entered into the US. And it wasn't, you know, they weren't fearful that they're going to have FOMO on the US market. It was more so you get to fail a lot in the small markets and iterate so that when you actually get to, you know, prime time, you can execute flawlessly. So I think that kind of perf- purposeful strategic mindset um, is once again reflective of the company where even going direct listing, I think if you go from first principles, it makes a lot of sense. And yeah, I think even the fact that they went to acquire podcasts, like none of their other uh, audio streaming competitors incorporated podcasts. They're the first ones to do that. And others called it crazy. They said this was um overpaying for acquisitions of Gimlet, Anchor, etc. It could be, uh, possibly, I'm not, I can't really say at this moment, but I think their continuous focus to invest in this area as an opportunity, as a place where engagement and attention is going, um, I think it's a really smart move. So overall, I'd say these are things that kind of showcase a company that is not afraid to challenge the kind of old structures that existed in the rec- the music industry for such a long time. Checklist 12, does the company have a short range or long range outlook in regards to profits? I say long range. Um, I listened to one trans- uh, transcript and I, for me, it's, it's very memorable to hear Eck talk about the 10 year plan. And that's been kind of reiterated the long term view in the shareholder letters. So I think overall that they definitely have that. Um, you know, the company's been around for 14 years or so, and I don't think you really get there with all these short-term focuses. They do do have a quarterly um, letter, and I think they do provide quarterly guidances, which I'm not too big of a fan of, but um, I would say overall, they're all long-term focused. Item 13, in the foreseeable future, will the growth of the company require sufficient equity financing so that the large number of shares and outstanding will largely cancel the existing stockholders' benefit from this anticipated growth? No, I don't think so. I think they have a solid cash position. They have a net cash position. Um, their cash and short-term investments amount to like $1.5 billion, And I think their lease obligations, their capital leases are something around like $500 million. So they still have at least like a billion dollars in cash. Um, all the uh, cash flow is reinvested into uh, sales and marketing and R&D. So I, I really don't think they will need any equity financing um, in the near future. They do use it though. Uh, for acquisitions i think that's something to be watchful of so that they don't get too aggressive with it um i haven't found an indication that they have yet but that's something to keep in my mind of uh, keep an eye out for item 14 does management talk freely to investors about his affairs when things are going well but climb up when troubles and disappointments occur uh, i'll need to follow the company more at least what i've read on 
nothing's really been shared. Um, I don't know if they've had much disappointment. I think the biggest question I had was on the low ARPU and management address are pretty well, if that's an indication. But yeah, it's kind of more of a wait and see. And finally, does the company have a management of unquestionable integrity? Once again, I'm not sure. Um, at least the interviews I've heard about Daniel Ek, um, I, I'm a personal fan of what he does. And I, I believe that he's kind of a no bullshit kind of CEO, which I extremely respect. I like how he's building a company that seems to go against uh, industry norms, which I also love. So I am biased in that regard. But does that mean that he has unquestionable integrity? I don't know. Um, I want to say that he does because of the way he, he has skin in the game. But that also requires more monitoring. So to kind of end off with, uh, can't really kind of end it off without talking about valuation in some way. Um, I think for me, like the big question is, is this, is this a 10 bagger company? Like, you know, I, w- I would love to invest in a company, like to invest in a company that will 10x over 10 years. I think that'd be a pretty solid proposition. Um, that would mean the company would have to grow at 24, 24% annually. Um, at current uh, enterprise value, oh, hmm. I thought I thought I thought I wrote down that the enterprise value is forty something. I guess I was wrong. The enterprise value is actually thirty three billion. So whatever I said about being forty billion before, please correct me. Um, so the enterprise value is around thirty three point five billion dollars, and I see at that I see a yield of something like. Um, four percent and yeah for it to be a hundred bagger i think there's a multitude of factors like you're going to see gross margin expansion you're going to see sales multiple expansion and a continued growth in the sale of the business through more subscribers and ads um yeah i think that's kind of what you get four percent yield and this is where you know you have to consider your own opportunity cost and try to figure out what percent how much uh, growth the market might be factoring in, um, but if I if I weren't if I wanted to see like is it possible for the company to be a ten bagger in ten years and I need twenty four percent return annually, I would require twenty you know, percent annual growth for the next ten years. Would that be possible? Um, what would that look like? And in one aspect, yeah, I think that's quite feasible. If that's the bull case, I think that's pretty feasible. Um, so yeah, that's my thought on the company. I hope this was fun. I hope this was entertaining. And I hope to do a better job the next day and the next day and next day. Uh, thanks for sticking around and listening. And I'll try my best to have this report out maybe um, tomorrow or so. So, all right. Thanks for listening and take care.